Hi everyone, it's Mark Bittman, and welcome to Food. As always, you can reach us at food at markbittman.com and feel free to do that. We do respond and um, we will also answer questions on air. So any questions you have about cooking or anything else food, let us know. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. You're about to listen to an interview that really made me giddy with excitement. If you're into farming, social justice, land reform, this is a no-brainer for you. But I can't imagine anyone not finding the awesome people I talked with here anything short of fascinating. You will hear four voices. Me, uh, you may know my friend Liz Carlisle, who's an assistant professor in the Environmental Studies Program at UC Santa Barbara, where she teaches courses on food and farming. Liz's new book, which is a collaborative effort, is called Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. In it, she shares the stories of five people of color who are reviving their ancestors' methods of growing food, reclaiming their community's ancestral knowledge and relationship to land, and sequestering carbon in the soil to address climate change. Two of these inspiring people are joining us today. They are Mai Nagoyan and Latrice Tatsi. Farmer Mai, as they're known, is a true social justice activist, and part of their work includes applying their background in climate research and Buddhist farming to cultivate regionally adapted heritage grains and Vietnamese seed crops. We will talk with Mai about all of that. Latrice is an ecologist and advocate for tribally directed bison restoration. She remains active in her family's cattle ranching operation at Blackfeet Nation in northwest Montana. 
That's enough intro. We have a lot of material here, and it is really great. So let's get right to it. I'll just start by saying that the book that we're talking about here, which is Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming, which Liz coordinated or wrote, I'm not sure what you say, with five other people, and we'll get to that, of course. And then Liz, it's such a big topic that it's hard to, we'll just touch on a few things. But Liz has done a great job of organizing and giving overviews to this material, but bring depth to the subjects of agroecology, climate change, soil health, agriculture in general, but also to the land of North America and from its time as a productive, stable, functioning agricultural system that served people and animals and even land and the rest of the biosphere to where we are now, which is a place where most agriculture produces food for profit while the land and the environment in general suffer. And where, in addition to many people go hungry or suffer from other forms of malnutrition and where biodiversity is at its lowest point ever. All right, enough. So, sorry, but, you know, with this subject, it's hard to just say, hey, guys, Liz, I guess I'll start with you. You're, again, coordinating a book about regenerative farming, which is a We'll talk about that term, but in general, it's a movement happening in farming in which farmers are not only farming in a principled and respectful manner, but trying to reconnect with their roots to fight climate change. And and you tell or help tell the story of the stories of five women of color who are reviving, rejuvenating their ancestors' methods of growing food. So as I mentioned, we have Maya and Latrice here with us today. But before we go too deep, maybe Liz, you can give us a little brief primer on regenerative farming, what it means and why it's so important. I promise I'll talk less for the rest of the, that was a lot. (laughs) It's a big topic. And thank you so much for inviting us, Mark. Yeah, so I've been really excited about this idea of regenerative agriculture ever since I first heard the term. And I think even since before I first heard that particular term, but I've been really concerned for a long time about the degree to which agriculture contributes to climate change. The estimates range from, you know, a quarter to a third of global greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture as it's currently practiced. And at the same time, I've been really excited about the idea that we could shift agriculture from a climate problem to a climate solution. And that because in agriculture, we we partner with plants, you know, those plants can draw carbon dioxide down from the atmosphere and, and replace it in the soil so that all of those hundreds of years of, you know, plowing and releasing carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, well, that could all be healed in a sense through regenerative agriculture. That's the promise that got me really excited about it when I started writing and researching regenerative agriculture about 12 years ago. But in this book, I think what I recognized is that the extractive logic that that you know removed all that carbon from the soil and into the atmosphere that was part of larger processes of colonization and so that's really what we have to heal a truly regenerative agriculture goes back to those root causes of colonization 
And, and we need to look to the leadership of Indigenous communities and communities of color that not only originated these practices of regenerative agriculture, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago in their own communities, but also have been honing them as strategies of survival and resistance in the face of the very extractive agriculture that those communities are on the front lines of. And so as I, you know, spoke to more and more folks from these communities who had these visions of regenerative agriculture as truly healing, as truly reparative, I got more and more excited about what a powerful climate solution this could be, but also the synergy between a climate solution and a path towards racial justice in the food and agriculture sector. Is what we're talking about regenerative agriculture or is it, are we talking about something bigger? I mean, I know we're all always grappling with terms, but when you start to talk about social justice, are we still talking about regenerative agriculture? And any of you can answer this, obviously. I'll just jump in and say, yes, absolutely. I think that we are. And that regenerative agriculture, in order to achieve its goals of moving the needle on climate change, needs to engage with racial justice and land justice. So I think, yes, we're talking about regenerative agriculture. We're talking about how to sequester carbon in soil through agricultural methods that really center soil health. And in order for that to happen, that needs to be part of larger social processes as well. We can't imagine that these technical changes will be achieved on their own without being part of a larger set of social changes. I'm with you there. I, I know that some people are concerned about the co-opting of the term regenerative agriculture because it's easygoing sounding. It's everybody, how can you not be in favor of regenerative? But I think if my goal were to say, I'd like listeners to this podcast to turn this thing off and say, or to finish this thing <laughs> and say, huh, regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, whatever, you can't just throw these terms around without thinking about how you get to the place where farming is healthy. It's fine to say, or it's easy to say, yes, we want healthy farming. We don't want farming to contribute to climate change. I'm not saying it's easy to do it, but it's easy to say it. It's important for us to stress that it's not easy to come by, that this isn't easy to come by because there are all of these social and racial justice issues attached to land. Because when we talk about farming, we're talking about land. So that's not really a question, but I bet one or more of you could comment on it. Yeah, I think you're pointing to, you know, how regenerative is a contested term, right? That there's, a, it's, it's a hopeful term, right? That I think captures this feeling that people have in terms of the dissatisfaction around the interventions so far in agriculture to try to make it more sustainable and uh, just. And so uh, with the, disillusionment perhaps around organic and sort of how far that's gotten us that we still only have 2% of U.S. farmland as certified organic, that we're not seeing the social and environmental impacts that we we had sort of hinged onto that movement, you know, that there's now a discussion about regenerative. And I really want to have listeners yeah, focus on sort of the forms of suffering that you had sort of outlined at the beginning and thinking about 
how we address those forms of suffering. And it may not neatly fit under the term regenerative because, and you know, you might, a listener might look up that term and see like, oh, General Mills is putting out a regenerative certification, uh, you know, like a platform. And that doesn't necessarily match up with what permaculturalists are saying are regenerative or what indigenous activists are saying are regenerative, right? There's, there's so many definitions of that term, but I think if we go back to sort of the root causes that also Liz was talking about, the forms of suffering that isn't just environmental, but it is social that is connected to colonialism, right, and forms of oppression. From there, that's when we talk about what we want to regenerate. It's regenerating diverse ecosystems and cultures that it necessarily has to involve repair and restoration, right? Otherwise, we're just regenerating what we have now, which is a degraded <laughs> form of the things that have resulted from the forms of violence and dispossession that have already happened, right? So we need to do this repair work and that reparations, right, is, is a social justice matter. And so does that fit under the term regenerative? You know, possibly. And listeners can, and hopefully will become participants in trying to come up with a more clear and cohesive and unifying, you know, definition of regenerative. But we also don't want people to like lose sight of the purpose of, you know, what regenerative is trying to do, right? Through jargony terms and, you know, trying to keep up with the most recent uh, hashtag, but really to, um, to stay focused on what are the, what are the forms of suffering that we are trying to ameliorate how do we do that together? In a way, we're talking about regenerating, repairing our relationship to the land. And when you say repair in the same route as reparations, and I think that that, if you take all of that together, I think you kind of get close to what we're talking about here. Latrice, I want to ask you specifically about some of the work you're doing. You're a soil ecologist and cattle producer and a member of the Blackfeet Nation, obviously. And you're also an advocate for tribally directed bison restoration. That's regenerative stuff. We're talking about an effort to restore buffalo to their historical range. Can you just talk about that for a little bit in the context that we're we're living in right now? In the terms of, you know, regenerative agriculture and, and, you know, bringing back the bison, you know, after the introduction of more agrarian practices of bringing cattle to, you know, historical territories. And, you know, now we've adapted uh, with those, with those changes, but now, you know, bringing back the tribal herd in management and bringing them back to, to, to their traditional home and to their territory and understanding what that relationship is that they have with the land, because whether we're talking about plants or whether we're talking about animals, we have to look too at the evolution of, you know, the relationship that they have. And so, you know, for my work and what I'm particularly interested in is what is the relationship that the any, the bison have to the land and really, you know, watch that because you know we're not we're not going to go back to historical times of where every animal was able to roam freely and we had like diverse um gardens you know native cultures had the diversity in how they were growing their foods but the you know the idea is to make those implementations and changes 
where we can. And, and that's a big part of my work is taking what we've had through our cultural knowledge and our cultural sciences and looking through that lens of how our people held that relationship with the land. You know, when for me, when we speak on regenerative grazing or regener regenerative, and you know what um, Liz and everybody was talking about, it's also revitalizing that relationship. And I think that's really key because as humans, we tend to take ourselves out of, you know, the equation that we're equal to animals and that we're all a product of this, these ecological processes. And when we do that, then I think that's where we get into trouble in mismanaging resources. And so in our stories, in our cultures, we always learned from the animals. The animals took pity on us and showed us how to live on the land. And so for me, and the way that I look at the research that I'm doing is I'm just learning the ways of the, that the, the relationship the animals have to the land while also looking into, you know, bringing a sustainable food back to the Blackfeet Nation and, and you know, in that implementation and those changes that are already coming, but also, you know, we, the, the land feeds us, the soil has to be healthy the, for the plants to be healthy, and then the animals are for us to consume. So it's that reciprocal relationship that I really see as value when we talk about regenerative egg, because not only regenerative relationships, but we're also, you know, regenerating this knowledge of, of people of color in different cultures that it, you know, was the way that they maintain their livelihoods. And so, you know, in the bigger lens and the broader lens, that's how I really look at it. And having these conversations are important because, you know, we can't all speak to everybody on an individual basis, but when we have opportunities to be on these podcasts, we can share our outlook. And that's really important because we are people of stories and how we share information, it's oral traditions, and so being able to carry that on and share our knowledge through, you know, this new age of, you know, technology, it makes it nice because we're just throwing stones and creating ripples. And as you throw bigger stones, you get bigger ripples and, you know, it creates these changes. And, you know, we're, we're at the start of it because when you have, you know, these Eurocentric values come in, it was only a one-way process. And, you know, that's just the way things went about it. And now we're kind of in trouble because, you know, that dominated. But now we're coming back to look at all the cultures that lived on these landscapes, not just in the United States, but around the world and really valuing what those relationships are to learn how to balance out what we take and what we receive and take, you know what I mean? And those relationships of bringing balance. So that's kind of my view on it. The answer of throwing rocks and creating ripples is like, just killed me. It'd be such a, such an appropriate thing to say sometime. It's just like, I don't know exactly, but here's the conversation we're having now, and we're spreading some words and making some noise, and that's important also. I also think that there's a, there's a sort of, I don't know if it's Eurocentric or human, but this notion that we live such short lives, relatively speaking, and if, if we don't have an oral tradition, then it's hard to see the past. And so many people in the world have been separated from their pasts through forced migration or through genocide or any number of things that it's hard to, I'll just say personally, it's hard sometimes for me to remember that there is this 
10,000 years at least or or more, depending on how you look at it, of accumulated wisdom of people living on the land. And I have zero wisdom of people living on the land. So it's just worth remembering. Um, Latrice, one other question I wanted to ask you was the relationship between bison or buffalo and the land and how how that relates to climate change, how, how we might use that to look at climate change. In the perspective that I look at it, Mark, it's a relationship in how they graze because people could say, oh my goodness, like cattle grazing or, you know, bison grazing in general is, is you know, causing uh, carbon to be released into the atmosphere and not put back. But when you look at grazing practices of bison of where they'll graze an area and they'll let it rest for, you know, longer periods of time. And so when I started to do with work with these nonprofit organizations on the Blackfeet Nation, it was really taking that approach and applying it to cattle ranch operations because it's looking back in the past to make it applicable to today and knowing that if we graze it, but we let it rest, those plants are going to come back and they're going to be able to take more carbon out of the atmosphere, you know, and make carbohydrates in the, in the soil, the micro, you know, the organisms are going to, um, you know, use what they can and then kind of have a little burp or whatever, and then release a little, but for the, you know, a large part, it's really about having that, those plants root it back in to the soil, but looking at it in that rest period. And so for me, that's really what it's about is, you know, using grazing as a tool and using buffalo or bison as a tool and how to have better management practices so that, you know, that relationship of the carbon sink in the soil and the grazing can be integrated back in, in a more positive context instead of everybody pointing fingers, oh, it's them, it's them. It's like, no, you got to find a balance and you have to understand that we kind of mess that up and it's about relearning that. And so for me, it's always that process of of just looking at it through their behavior and trying to understand it through a more scientific background, but also through the cultural science background of, you know, why their behavior was so important, not just for, you know, the survival of our, our my people or, you know, other Indigenous people in general, but, you know, how those ecological relationships benefited, you know, what we call Mother Earth in the bigger sense. Thank you for that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. 
Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Maya, I did want to ask you about Buddhist farming, which I know nothing about, and I'm sure most of the people listening here know nothing about either, and you've been involved in, so maybe you could just tell us a little about what that means. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, so Buddhism basics. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There's uh, the concept of the Four Noble Truths, Uh, the Four Noble Truths being that there is suffering, that there is a cause of suffering, there is an end to suffering, and the way out is through the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path <laughs> involves... Here we right. are, Buddhism 101. I love it. <laughs> yeah, is there a crossover podcast? Uh, I'm sure. We can find um, somebody. <laughs> but the Eightfold Path involves you know, right thought, right action, right speech. There's eight of them. You can, you can continue from there. And so how that influences my farming is, well, I mean, I think going back again to sort of how you opened up this podcast, right, thinking about the kinds of suffering related to agriculture. You, know, you mentioned the suffering in relation to, you know, diet-related illnesses, food, uh, you know, hunger, and those access issues. And so, you know, in my farming, thinking about that, I grow Vietnamese crops, as seed and heirloom varieties of grain. And I specifically grow these older varieties of uh, wheat, for example, that weren't selected out so that they had this outsized endosperm, right? The way that modern wheat has been bred so that it could be sifted into refined flour that has caused diabetes and all kinds of diet-related illnesses, heart diseases, right? That you've, you've also, I think, delved into a bit. And so I grow these varieties that can be eaten as whole grains and, you know, have the, you know, fiber and all the the nutrients intact. So thinking about the cause of suffering in relation to this colonization process of refining wheat so that we could export it everywhere and, you know, dominate other um, uh, economies and erode food sovereignty and all these other places in the world, right? So addressing that form of suffering through growing these varieties of wheat and also explicitly working with millers who uh, keep the the grain intact as whole wheat and and mill them in stone ground form, which I will not get into. I'm sure you already have a podcast on. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's a conversation I'd love to have, but maybe another time. Um, Right. But so that's sort of on the, you know, on the sort of, seed selection and trying to get these non-patented varieties of wheat that are old for those you know dietary reasons but also for climate adaptation reasons right so we know that well Liz talked about the forms of climate related suffering that has been induced by agriculture right the the release of greenhouse gases for example and the varieties that i grow capture 5 to 6 times more carbon than other kinds of grains and so you know, I explicitly chose them to do that carbon capture of atmospheric carbon and also 
you know, have adapted them to the California climate, which, as many people know, uh, we've been experiencing drought for a long time, wildfires, you know, flash storms uh, after these periods of drought. And so how do we ensure that we don't experience these forms of suffering of, you know, food insecurity by having these climate adapted grains? And so, you know, that's really informed, again, how I choose my seeds, but also how they relate to my farming practices of dry farming, rotations with animals, uh, no petrochemical uses, and intercropping, just to name a few. Right. Would you equate regenerative farming and Buddhist farming, or can you say what the relationship between the two is or the differences are? Well, okay, so I think I'll just be honest about my views of regenerative farming, which is that it's a term that makes me roll my eyes. (laughs) It's like a pretty instantaneous reaction, just because it's been so... It's um, it's the hot term, and I've been in so many conversations, too, where there's a great deal of uh, gatekeeping and grandstanding of, like, people who said, like, I wrote the book on regenerative, there's no <laughs> other definition, and, you know, but also looking at regenerative and, like I said the earlier, the sort of, there's these different definitions espoused by different groups of people, and... Overall, what I see in terms of the ones that have really risen to the top in popularity, it's like the practices kind of have this like dim sum approach to taking practices that have already existed in other parts of the world and other cultures. So to that extent, yes, I see overlap. Overlap in the sense of, you know, like having perennials that have plants with deep root structures um, and that can be pollinators and but pollination and the recognition of the sort of longer time scale, our connectedness deep into the ground as well with other beings, you know, that is something that is also within the Buddhist perspective of interconnectedness. So, I, you know, I do see those forms of overlap, but I think what's helpful for me in terms of exercising my Buddhist upbringing in farming is thinking not just about the what we do, right? Regenerative, especially as it moves towards you know, how can you check off this criteria to say that you're regenerative, right? It's very focused on particular outcomes, but through a perspective such as that of Buddhism is also thinking about how we get there and the relationships that we have, right, through right speech, right action, and all of that, that those relationships are also key to to an ecosystem, a dynamic one, right? That um, compassion, um, the, the, like, action of compassion is key to then understanding how you will interact with those pollinators, how you'll interact with other animals that may come to the land in, for, you know, my instances, the case of wildfires where habitats are being destroyed and without a sense of compassion, I'd be like, all right, this farm is mine. You are not coming out here, (laughs) not eat my crops, but recognizing that, yeah, we are connected and that those animals are in flight and in need and yeah, we'll take a toll on my crop that that's, that's a part of a worldview of ecology that I don't see in regenerative. Maybe there's a message in there that the definition's elusive because it shifts from place to place and practice to practice that farmers are best off if they understand their land and what it needs and what it can do. 
And that's going to change. I mean, you're talking about California. It's obviously a lot different from New England or Europe or Africa or Asia or anywhere. So. Right. So maybe if we had like a lowercase r regenerative to just kind of like connect all these people who are yeah, just trying to, yeah, farm in a way that's, or be and be land stewards in a way that is more ecological Good. than mind for interconnectedness. <laughs> I'm cool with that. But I think once we lean towards that, like capital R, let's brand it, you know, put it in Whole Foods and, um, yeah, just uh, the way that it becomes exclusive, it like you said, it doesn't really account for the necessary regional adaptations that are very important in a, well, a dynamic world, but also with climate change. I wonder if that's part of the, and I do not at all want to get into this because it would take an hour, but I wonder if that's part of the of the argument for using the word agroecology, which is that it's a very hard word to co-opt because you can't even... <laughs> you don't even know what it is. So it doesn't really mean anything until you start explaining it. Anyway, let's not go there. Liz, I know you had some issues about doing this book, about doing it yourself. I think you've done an amazing job in bringing in other voices that are important and complementary and, and really wonderful. We're seeing that. We're seeing that here now. I wonder what, what you learned in the process and how you're feeling about it. Yeah, I, I've learned so much in the process of working on this book, and I'm learning so much even right now as we're in this conversation, as these conversations continue. So I think in many ways, the publication of a book, maybe sometimes we think of it as an ending, but for me, it's much more the beginning. It's this invitation into conversation. And so many, so much wisdom has come to me from really generous people um, as a result of that invitation, even just in the last couple of months. And I think one of the biggest things I've learned is, is the importance of taking leadership from Indigenous communities and communities of color if we really want to regenerate land in ways that tackle climate change and also at the same time really do tackle the legacy of colonization. And we can't tackle climate change without addressing the legacy of colonization. And whoever you are and, and however you relate to colonization, however you experience it in your daily life, whether you're on the front lines or not, whether you have some privilege that's come of it or not, ultimately that healing that we need for the land and for ourselves has to come from from healing those processes of colonization. And there are so many indigenous communities and communities of color who've been working to heal those processes of colonization as they show up in their own communities and in their own lands. And so for somebody like me, who comes from a settler colonial background, who's a white person, I think my role is to listen and to see how I can be of support. A, because that's really important from an equity perspective, but also I think it's really important to emphasize B, I'm thinking about this really influential quote about how our liberation is tied up with one another. That's actually from an Aboriginal Australian activist. And so if you're a white person, it's not an act of, of charity or generosity 
to support these efforts within Indigenous communities and communities of color. It's our liberation bound up in all of this because that extractive agriculture that was set off by these processes of colonization, ultimately it's come for white people's family farms. Ultimately, it came from my family's farm that, you know, my grandmother lost in the Dust Bowl. That extraction, ultimately, it's harmful to all life. And so it it is really, really important as we see ourselves in the face of an existential challenge like climate change to see also this leadership that's been there from all these Indigenous peoples, communities of color that have survived colonization to this point and have resisted and have continually shown a path to healing. It's really time for all of us you know, to follow on that path of healing. Okay. I'm asking for help in thinking about or talking about things that are hard to think about or talk about for me. Of course, we need to listen to one another and that Men especially need to listen to women, and white people especially need to listen to people of color, and so on. And and there's this way in which, in reading Healing Grounds and in thinking in the last few months, there's this this message that's been nibbling at me for a while, and which is, of course, something that people close to the land, indigenous people, but farmers have known forever, or many have known forever, and that's that We also need to listen to other animals, and we need to listen to the land itself. And, you know, I feel dumb or ignorant in saying that because I don't—it's not in my soul, I can say. And yet, it tracks. So, help me think about this. I guess in in a perspective that I look at it is the changes that I'm— practicing today or implementing today, even on my own family ranch, isn't necessarily what I'm doing for myself, but it's something that my children's children will benefit from. And bringing that back into when we talk about regen, when you guys kept saying that word, I was like, you know, like, it's like a, a like almost like a a, a new, like a new generation of, of thinking. And when we bring this back, because with words, you can manipulate words in, in the meaning. And so for me, you know, looking at it, like for our, my people, you know, talking about, you know, people of different color and different backgrounds, well, we have a medicine wheel and it's circular like the earth and then it's split in four and it has red, white, black, and yellow. And, and that symbolizes all the people of the earth. And then there's different meanings for life and, and how after, you know, we pass, there's life within that because we, we go back into a system. And so listening to all these conversations, they're really about systems and all systems are interconnected. And so, you know, looking at it through those perspectives, I feel like is really important in looking at yeah, regenerative agriculture is not going to save everything, but looking at how these systems interconnect to other things and how, you know, small changes could be implemented from, you know, what's being learned and what's being shared, I feel like is really one of the stronger suits of, of, you know, Liz giving us an opportunity to share our voices because Prior to, we weren't at the table, and then we got at this, a seat at the table, but we weren't really able to speak in, in a lot in terms. And now we have these platforms where, where we're able to speak and share, 
and come at it where where people have more of an open mindedness um, compared to you know looking at when you look back and so you know when you look at history if you break it down it's you could break it down to his story and whoever's telling their story is how it's going to be written and and saw and seen and viewed and so you know that's when I would I got excited I was like you know regen revamp re this new generation and so for me I'm always finding ways of like you know how can we incorporate that into the knowledge base and the cultures of people of color that we already have and share you know what is you know we're able to share because there's some things in our cultures that you know are cultural sensitive that we aren't able to share unless it's amongst with our own because you know whether it's tied to our ceremonies or our cultural practices you know that that binds us to who we are as a people and so just really looking at it from those perspectives i think is really important thank you for that my i have a feeling you go ahead <laughs> oh i also just wanted to clarify your question was your question what are ideas of ways that you could be more connected to other beings yeah, how do I listen or how do I hear that? Where's that awareness come from? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're kind of primed for it, right? Like you you think a lot about food and where it comes from. And certainly there is the social history. It's And then there's the biological history, but not just of the plant. But yeah, I think you know, so before we eat um, in our Buddhist practice, we... Uh, take a moment to give thanks to the earth, to the animals. And it's this kind of pause to kind of look at our food and to, you know, in the parlance of now, it's like to think about where it came from, right? But really deeply um, of, well, if I'm looking at this fig and there were wasps that were involved, right? In in the process of um, creating that fig fruit. And so, like, what was it like for that wasp to lay eggs inside this fig? Whatever. Maybe that's not a route that people want to take because it can seem kind of disgusting when you think about it. Sounds great. It's, it's just like getting all romantic thinking about it. It's, a, <laughs> it's really a cool thought. Right. So any number of plants, right? There was some pollinator. And you think about the journey of that pollinator, where it's lived, what habitats made it possible for it to live there its interactions with others. And so, you know, I think that, um, yeah, your, your very keen interest in food understatement, um, you know, I think can already leads you down that path. It already opens a door for thinking about that whole ecosystem that made it come to be. And the way that too, I think in terms of how people might connect food to listening, not just to other beings, but also to understanding our history and the needs for repair, right? When we come to think about the lands that this food is grown on, that it really requires the thousands of years of stewardship that had happened by indigenous peoples. And I think about that when um, you know, I go to grain conferences and hear about these fifth generation wheat farmers who say they've never added anything to their fields, but they rip every few years to bring up the nutrients. And I'm like, well, if you ripped, those nutrients came from people who really took care of that land, you know, all those generations before. So I think there are so many different points in our days when we can think about 
what made it possible for us to be here now and not just other humans, but yeah, also other beings. This has been really great and I appreciate your time and your patience and your wisdom and congratulations on this because it's a great project. But now my last question, which we ask everyone is, what did you have for dinner last night? Whoever wants to start, Latrice. Sure. This got brought up when I was with Liz last time. It was like a food. And I was I was I kind of showed up late because I was having dinner with my niece. And so my favorite food is steak. Like I'm, you know, I'm inherently like I love steak, whether it's buffalo or cow. And so for me, like steak is my favorite food. And, you know, I really think about the sacrifice of the animal had to give their life to sustain mine and in that relationship of giving and, and understanding. But also, you know, food is important too, because it brings you together. It brings people together, you know, to share conversation, you know, and, and to, you know, just connect. And so, you know, even this book is about that connection. And so, you know, I'm going to end it there. But for me, that's, you know, a steak. Why? I had a um, like a soba noodle broth soup with CSA shiitake mushrooms and uh, ginger that I grew and also um, miso that I had made. Uh, it's three-year-old miso from soybeans that I had made and the koji is from Kota Farms. That's how I'm impressed. <laughs> the, uh, the miso, yeah, it's the thing when you make it though is that... Uh, you can't just make a small batch. So I've got about three gallons of miso that I'm trying to eat through. And so the fact that it's three years old is really mostly just happenstance because it's taken me that long to try to eat through all of this miso. So yeah, just trying to plow through those jars every day. <laughs> I'm a big Coda Farms fan myself. That sounds great. Liz? I actually had a tali from an Indian restaurant that I really love in California. And there were multiple kinds of lentils, all really delicious. And, um, you know, to the conversation we were having earlier, I think lentils were the first plant that I connected to as a teacher and realizing that their way of sharing something and leaving something behind in the earth, that nitrogen that they had synthesized, that they would use some for their own growth, but then they would leave some behind for the next plant. Talking with farmers about witnessing that process and then reflecting on that process, it, it's just never left me that sort of lesson of lentils. And I also find them incredibly delicious. Right. You also wrote a great book about lentil farmers. It should be said. I think we're done. Thank you. It was so great. And, um, We'll be in touch. Congrats. And I do appreciate your time. Thank you, Mark. Likewise. Thanks for spending all this time with us. Yeah. Thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for your questions. Yep. Thank you, Mark. Bye. Bye. See y'all soon. Wow. Well, we try to keep interviews relatively short, but with three such great guests, it was tough. Anyway, I really enjoyed myself. I'm sure you could tell. After we spoke, Farmer Mai was kind enough to send me a couple of bags of wheat that they'd grown. Beautiful stuff, both berries and flour. I've made bread and salads with it already. And in honor of that, I thought I would 
read for you our recipe for wheat berry salad with cabbage and mustard. You could use any whole grain in this, and you can use almost any cabbage, but this is awesome with wheat and Savoy cabbage. So the ingredients are a pound or so of cabbage, a third of a cup of olive oil, or you could use some more, uh, two tablespoons of whole grain mustard. Again, you could use more, and it doesn't have to be whole grain mustard, but that grainy stuff is great in this. Two tablespoons of vinegar, sherry vinegar, cider vinegar, white wine vinegar, or to taste on that also. A lot of this is to taste. A small red onion, very thinly sliced, peeled and thinly sliced. And two cups of cooked wheat berries. So start with a little bit less than one one cup and cook them until they're done. Then trim the cabbage as you need to and grate it by hand or in a food processor. This should be about four cups. Uh, And then make a dressing of that third of a cup of oil, two tablespoons of mustard, two tablespoons of vinegar, salt and pepper. Whisk that together. It's really good with a lot of pepper. It's nice with an immersion blender or if you whisk it very well so that it's creamy. And then separate the slices of onions and sprinkle them into the dressing and stir until that's well-coated. Then toss the whole thing together, the cabbage, the wheat berries, and the dressing. Taste and adjust seasoning for that. Then serve uh, right away, or you can cover it and refrigerate it for up to a day. Enjoy that. I want to thank, of course, the totally cool Liz Carlisle, Mai Nagoyan, and Latrice Tatsi. You can find Liz on Twitter, at Liz Carlisle, at L-I-Z-C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. And Healing Grounds is out now. Great book. Check it out. Thank you for listening. Love to hear from you. Food at markbitman.com. We will talk with you next week when we will be joined by someone or maybe some two awesome people. Take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.